Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Morning, church. I need you to open your Bibles to two passages. In the Old Testament, go to 1 Kings 17, and then we'll be in Luke chapter 7. 1 Kings 17, and we'll turn to Luke 7 in just a little bit. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name is Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here at the church, and we're glad you're with us. As we continue looking at the Gospels, the stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about Jesus, and synchronizing them together in the order in which we believe they played out over time. And as we study this, we're trying to learn more and more. One of the things Michael DeFazio, who spoke last weekend for us uh, in the passage that he was given, uh, he kept saying over and over something that's just stayed with me all week, and I'm glad he preached on it. Whoever you are, Jesus is willing and able to help you. Uh, Whoever you are, whatever healing, whatever need, Jesus is willing and able. He has the heart and the capacity to care for you. And as I think about that message, I, I wonder often how we deal with that especially when some of us came here last week hurting and we believe that's true, but we're still hurting. The relationship that we want God to heal isn't healed yet. The cancer in our body or in the body of a loved one isn't gone. That tragedy has struck or a job you had last weekend you no longer have or you've been told you won't have it for long. And we hear that God is able and willing, but it doesn't heal the hurt that we have. See, one of the big questions that Christians have to talk about, but we don't want to talk about it. We have to talk about is what happens when God disappoints us? How do we handle that? Where is faith then when God doesn't do what we needed him or wanted him to do when we needed or wanted him to do it? And Michael talked about Jesus is willing and able to help you and waiting on that help is one of the hardest things we do. I'm going to ask a very direct, harsh question. It is a beautiful question beautiful Sunday morning. I got to see the sun come up this morning. It was gorgeous. God's just putting on a show. And yet I'm going to come in here and I'm going to bring a little rain. Is there any meaning in life? Is there anything we collect? Anything we purpose ourselves for? Is there anything we strive for in life that really has any true meaning if we die anyway? That's a happy thought on a Sunday morning, isn't it? You're all glad you came. You thought if I want to be bummed out, I'd just go work on Monday. But you come on Sunday and you want to encourage, but I got to ask you this question. Is there anything that you're spending your life for, collecting and and drawing in relationships or or possessions or acclaim or titles and you, you work really hard and you should and you strive for excellence and you want these things in your life, they provide comfort and they provide care. But at the end of the day, if someone else is going to sell them after you're gone, is does it matter if I'm going to die anyway? If, if the statistics are true, one out of one people die. So how do we handle that? You see, some people just don't think about it. It's called denial. For many of us, what we simply say is, yeah, I know, but I'm not dead yet. And I know one day I'm going to die, but I'm going to outlive every, I'm going to live beyond the average. But folks, half of us are going to live beyond the average and half of us are going to set the average. So you think, no, I'm going to live to 84.5 years of age. You don't know that. We live in denial by saying, I don't want to think about it. I'm just going to live while I'm alive and worry about death later. Be very, very careful of that. Jesus has talked to us about that. And yet for others, 
The hope is, well, I just, I hope, I hope it works out. Well, that's not a great option either. You have to have a purpose in your life that can face your inevitable death and still see life beyond it. There has to be something that you place as a value in your life that says, these possessions, my kids will take them. This home, somebody else will buy it and live in it or tear it down. The titles I have, when I'm dead, they won't call me doctor. At the end of the day, I know this might frighten you, and I got quite an interesting laugh out of first hour, but before you laugh at me, I was in the room when you all tried to do that tricky clap and sing. I saw you all quit. I saw every one of you go, I can't do both. We'll have a sermon on perseverance coming up very soon. So before you laugh at me, I want you to know something weird about me. I pull into the Carterville Cemetery every Sunday morning and read my notes out loud before I come to church. Weird, huh? You'll never come back. Um, The reason I do it is, A, you're never interrupted in a cemetery. I can park there, be talking to myself in my car, and no one judges me. And the second thing is, I'm surrounded by a bunch of people who I wonder, when I'm reading my sermon, would live their lives differently if they knew then what they know now. It puts me in perspective that I'm going to be one day there. And what purpose in my life is so great that even knowing I'm going to die allows me to live a life worth living with hope. You see, there are eight resurrections. If I can count, there are eight resurrections, specific moments of people being resurrected in the scriptures. Uh, And there are three in the Old Testament, there are three in the New Testament, and there are two in the book of Acts. And when I look through these, I find some interesting things. I want to compare the first Old Testament resurrection story, the first one mentioned, and then I want to compare the first New Testament gospel resurrection story. And I want us to learn from this, how we live a life knowing death is inevitable. And what do we learn about God and ourselves in that process? Let's let's go through the first Old Testament story. It's found in 1 Kings 17. It it deals with a, a prophet named Elijah. Elijah was called by God to be a prophet to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was living an adulterous life with the world and rejecting their God. King Ahab was their king, and he was a mess, spiritual mess, power monger, had nothing to do with God and was living for his own moment. He had power, he was living, he would worry about death another day. And God said to Elijah, you're going to go and tell him that there's going to be a drought and a famine on the land. And when King Ahab heard the prophecy, he tried to kill the prophet, which is just an idiot move. Because all Elijah was doing was telling you what God was going to do, and you can't kill God. Well, Elijah went into the wilderness. He was taken by God out into the wilderness where he was protected from King Ahab, where he couldn't be found. And he was in this just lonely, empty place. And the Bible says that God fed him in the wilderness bread and meat from the mouths of ravens. Now, we all look at this. When I was growing up in Sunday school, that was this cute little picture of these beautiful little black birds bringing in like picnic baskets of food to Elijah. This morning, in God's perfect timing, on my way out of the Carterville Cemetery, headed toward the church building, I observed two ravens eating a dead armadillo. That wasn't what I saw in Sunday school. That was gross. And the minute I drove by, I looked in my rearview mirror. They weren't up in the air 12 seconds. They were back on the ground having breakfast. It was gross. Elijah, by doing what God told him to do, had to eat. Just think about that, the raw meat and bread that scavenger birds would bring to him. So his life wasn't pretty. Sometimes God even disappoints his spokesman. And there he was in the wilderness, 
And then God led him to the town of Zarephath, where he said, you're going to meet a widow woman. Ask her to stay at her house and for her to feed you something. And Elijah does that. He meets this woman. He says, hey, can, do you have a place for me to stay? Hospitality was expected. And so she would open her house to them. And then what broke her back, if you will, what, what broke her emotions was when he said, could you make me lunch? I haven't eaten today. And she began to break down. And she said, I have enough oil and flour to feed myself and my son one more meal, and then we're going to starve to death. And that was all she could handle. And the prophet said, now listen, just make me, make me something to eat, and God will take care of the rest. And he did. Day after day, she took that little bit of flour, and she took that little bit of oil, and she mixed it up, and there was enough for all three of them to have a meal. I don't know if it was a banquet. I don't think it was, but it was enough. It was like manna. It was sufficient for what they needed without it becoming an idol they had to worship. And then day after day, day after day, day after day, and you would think, man, the miracle worker was there. The prophet was there. And he provided for her something for today, something beautiful for today. And wouldn't that be enough? It was until her son got sick. I want you to notice for many of us living in denial of the reality that we won't be here forever. We're only worried about the little lunch we get today and not about what happens with life. Look at verse 17 of 1 Kings 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? I want you to remember the question found in verse 18. The question is, Is God paying me back for my sin? Is that why my son's dead? You provide me food, but you can't keep him alive. Verse 19, give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? That's a big question, Elijah. God, what are you doing? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Living day by day and denying what's coming to us might give you a temporarily comfortable life. But knowing what's coming does not have to devastate you either. You see, the questions I'm asking you are really the fundamental questions of the book of Ecclesiastes found in your Old Testament. If I live this grand life and die anyway, what good is it? And Jesus is going to show us that there's good to even be found in death. Let's go to the first resurrection story found in the New Testament. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Jesus went to a town called Nain. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Boy, those two stories sound similar, don't they? The first Old Testament resurrection and the first gospel resurrection sound so distinctly similar. 
Two widows, two sons, two healings, one God. I want to answer some questions about the resurrection that God does. And if you'll stay with me this morning, I hope it will challenge every one of us to ask the question, what am I truly living for? Let's begin. Why does God raise the dead? Why does God allow resurrections to happen? Now, the biggest answer to that question, the the most specific answer is, I'm really not sure, but I see something here. Let me tell you what it is. It's his love being displayed through his grace. The reason God raises things from death to life is his grace is manifested through his love. That he loves us in spite of the damage we do to ourselves. His love motivates him to rescue us from the things we've chosen for ourselves. In verse 19, Elijah says, give me your son. And they picked up the son and carried him to the upper room where he's staying and laid him on his bed. This is not a passive approach. When he hears the woman say, did my son die because of my sin? Elijah says, give me the son. And he carries him upstairs. He's actively engaged in this. You see, there's a a difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is when I feel bad for you. Empathy is when I attempt to feel what you're feeling. And Elijah doesn't practice sympathy. He doesn't go, I'm sorry, he died. I'm sorry. He says, give me the child. I want to do something. I want to respond to this. I don't want this death to be the end of this moment. So he takes the child upstairs and you read what actions he performed. Jesus goes by and he sees a funeral procession. Now Luke tells us that she was a widow and this was her only son. And there's really no evidence in scripture except maybe that's found out post fact. But Jesus saw something in this moment that Jesus knew she was a widow and Jesus knew that that was her only son. How did he know? Because in that culture, Whoever led the funeral procession. And when you picture casket, don't picture what we have today. It it wouldn't have been this big pine box with a fancy lid and all the stuff in it. But they would have been carrying his body wrapped up. And so as they're going, Jesus sees that she's leading the procession. He knows culturally that the the patriarch, the the husband, the grandfather, the one who was going to care for the family led the procession. When he sees a woman leading it, he deduces she's a widow And because she has no other children leading the procession with her, no men with her, this is probably her only son. And Jesus, instead of going by and seeing it and saying, oh, that's a shame, Jesus engages it. He empathizes with it. Verse 13 says, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he says these words, don't cry. She has every reason in the world to cry. She should be crying because women could not go get a job. She had very few options. There was no men standing with her, so there was no one in her family to care for her. It wasn't because they were at work and it was, you know, it was inconvenient. They would have been there with her. There's no one to provide for her and Jesus' heart goes out to her. He understands that her condition is she's either going to have to prostitute herself or she's going to have to beg But she's in this all on her own. And he says, don't cry. Now, my dad used to do that to me. I don't know if you ever had this. My dad's a wonderful man. He's going to be here in a few weeks, and he's going to probably stand up here and tell you everything I say is a lie, but I'm not lying. (laughs) This is the same man who would get on me, and I'd be crying. He'd look at me, you want a reason to cry? I'm doing fine on my own, Dad. Thanks. (laughs) I'll let you know if I do, though, however. And he'd give me that look like dry up, which was one of the least useful expressions in the entire world. 
But now I would look at this and go, no, dad, I'm I'm crying because I'm hurting or I'm emotional or I'm upset or something. I get it. Jesus said, don't cry. But here's the difference. As I pick on my dad, he was the reason I was crying. Jesus would be looking at this woman. He said, don't cry. Why? Because I can fix what's making you cry. I'm going to help you. And he does what he does. Timothy Keller says that Jesus never sends his resurrection power into someone's life. Instead, he goes into it. I love that. Jesus doesn't simply say, arise. He goes into the story. You see, the reason God resurrects things is because his love is displayed through his grace. He wants to be a part of our story. He doesn't sit on a throne in heaven disinterested and disconnected. He entered our world because we couldn't enter his anymore. And in that moment, we understand why he does. You see, Jesus did not raise this boy for this woman because of her compassion or because of her goodness. Jesus raised this son because of his compassion and because of his goodness. He did it because he wanted to. So when Michael says last week that God has the willingness and the capacity to meet any of your needs, it's not because he's obligated. It's because he can't help himself. He's that passionate about you and me. And both Elijah and Jesus knew that God. So they had no problem seeking resurrection power from him. The second question I want to ask is, to whom does resurrection come? And this is what made my tail wag when I learned this about, I was 12 years ago, exactly. But I was at a conference when a man spoke on this text. And this Bible story in Luke 7 has always been one of my favorites. And I didn't know why I connected to it, but it was always one of my favorites. It just made me love Jesus more to know that he'd walk by a funeral procession and go, watch this, and change everything. But then I went to this conference and I heard a man teach on this. And he said, I want you to notice something. Look at this verse with me, Hebrews eleven thirty-five. Hebrews 11 is a great chapter on what faith has looked like in the history of mankind and God's interaction with it. What has faith accomplished? Hebrews 11, 35, by faith, women received back their dead, raised to life again. Why does it say just women? You mean men never do? God only resurrects things for women? And that, that really caused me to wonder. Then I looked back at the miracles of resurrection and Not every one of them, but almost all of them, the person resurrected was given back to a woman. The widow gets back her son in 1 Kings 17. The Shunammite woman gets back her son from Elisha, 2 Kings 4, different prophet, similar name. Mary and Martha get Lazarus back in John 11. The Jairus' daughter, the the daughter is given back to the, the father and the mother. In the book of Acts, Tabitha, the patroness of the widows in this community, when she dies, she's resurrected. She's given back to those widow women. Are you noticing a trend here? God's resurrection power is given to those who have no power. You see, one of the reasons we don't think beyond this current day, this current meal, and this current satisfaction we have, the reason we deny that our death is coming and we ought to live for a hope bigger than our death is because we have power. You have money. You're not worried about starving tomorrow. You have a job. You're not worried about not having a home or not having insurance or others. And some of you in this room will go, I'm I'm there now. I am worried about those things. You're powerless. You see, Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You'll love the one and despise the other. 
The reason many of us don't live in the reality of our eventual death to learn how to live now in the hope of the gospel is because we have way too much control. So when we need Jesus, we'll call him. But until I need him, I'm good. Resurrection power happened over and over and over to those who had no power. Jesus' resurrection power also comes to those who will abandon their power, who will, no, who will not love life to their death. People with power and people in power don't ask what the future holds because they believe they hold the future. Elijah is fully aware that this woman has no hope if God doesn't do what only God can do. He sees that she's going to be in isolation, she's going to be marginalized, and she's going to be in utter poverty. You see, I want to be real careful what I'm about to say because I could trigger a reaction that would cause you to shut me off. And, but I feel compelled to say this. For many of us, the reason we don't have time to be involved in kingdom work, I don't mean coming to church. I mean the reason we don't feel we have time to be proactively building the kingdom in our work, in our home, in our, in our off time is because we are way too much in control of what we have. We don't need to do any of those things. And in fact, this is why resurrection power is often missing in many of our lives. Because we got it. Let Jesus take care of those people. Elijah and Jesus saw someone who was one of those people. And they didn't just sympathize, they empathized. Now you're going to think that this is tied with the hurricanes taking place that are hitting land right now in Florida, or what took place in Houston, or the tragedies around the country. But to be honest with you, this was written a month ago. The reason you and I are to care about the poor, to care about the oppressed, to care about the unsaved, to know that God is going to do something. The reason we're to care about Houston, the Caribbean, Florida, Georgia, Carolinas, the reason we're to care about immigrants, the reason we're to care about the outcast, about the orphans and those in foster care, those in the prisons, those that are widowed and orphaned, the reason we're to care about them is not so we feel better about ourselves. They have no power and we know who does. We know that there's resurrection power no matter how marginalized you are and how uncomfortable you are. But until the church realizes in our comfort that unless we abandon our comfort, we won't take care of the uncomfortable. But Jesus and Elijah did. So to to whom does the resurrection power come? To those who are willing to give up their power so they can share Jesus' power. So we've asked why and to whom. Now let's ask for what reason does the resurrection power come? It's to persuade us that there's more than just our temporary satisfaction. You see, the resurrection answers our deepest questions and it eliminates our greatest doubts. The resurrection answers our deepest questions and it will eliminate our greatest doubts. It doesn't eliminate every doubt. For some reason, God has chosen in his wisdom to leave a few dangling threads that bother us. And we're like cats. We just got to keep swatting at them. And God's like, I'm comfortable with that. I've given you enough reason to believe and I've given you enough evidence for faith. I want you to live in faith and there will be doubts. In verse 24 in 1 Kings 17, it says, listen to the climax of the story. Now I know, the woman said, that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. You see, Elijah provided her an answer. It wasn't just, is there going to be enough food for today? But what happens when I die? What happens when my son dies? What happens when death punches me in the face? Elijah said, God has the answer. 
if this God is for us, then what could be against us, right? What temporary dissatisfaction you're going through now is bigger than the God who can raise from the dead? Look at the end of Luke 7's story. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. That's an interesting response. A great prophet has come. Well, let me tell you that Nain isn't that far away from where Elijah and Elisha raised the dead. The people knew the community they were living in. They're like, dude, that sounds like what Elijah did. A widow, a dead boy, no hope, resurrection. He's the great prophet. But what they didn't understand was, no, he wasn't the great prophet. Let me explain why. Elijah cries out. He prays. Jesus doesn't. Elijah cries out three times and questions God. Jesus speaks once and never questions God. Elijah screams, the Hebrew says. Jesus simply speaks. You see, what's the difference? The difference is Elijah was calling to the one who had the power. Jesus was the one who had the power. Elijah had to ask for the help. Jesus was the help. He wasn't the great prophet. He was God. And in their deepest moment, Jesus was revealing that what Elijah did was good. What Jesus did was forever. You see, the resurrection comes through the loving grace of God. It comes to people who have no power and know they have no power. And it changes our thinking about who he is. He's not just one great miracle worker. He is the answer to every issue we have. He answers every question about how do I live for today being fully aware that there has to be a greater hope if I die. So how is this all possible? How does this all come together? Why are these two stories so similar in our Bibles for us to understand? Well, it's simply this way. Look at the question again that the widow of Zarephath asked Elijah. Has my son died because of my sin? Is this the punishment for what I've done? To take away my hope. You see, he was her hope. To take away my future. He was her future. To take care of the one who would take care of me. He was the one to take care of her. And Elijah went to God and said, what is going on? She's, she's questioning you and, and she's asking, is my sin the reason my son is gone? And God's answer is No. Your son did not die for your sins, but my son will. And that's the difference between the two stories. As similar as they are, the difference is that Jesus walked by the casket and he reached up and he touched it. And Luke says when he touched it, the funeral procession stopped. I I want you to understand why. If you touched the casket or you touched something that held a dead body, you couldn't go into the tabernacle. You couldn't go into the temple. You couldn't draw into the presence of God. You were cast outside of the community for a period of seven to 14 days. And you had to be purified during that time. And for that period of time, you could not draw close to God. It reminded us of what sin does between us and God. And Jesus reaches up and he touches it. And he takes the filth and the death and the decay. And he takes all the tragedy and he assumes it. And when he touched it, everybody went, whoa. You see, Jesus didn't walk by and say, that's sad. You earned it. Jesus walked by and said, I got it. That's why it's my favorite story. He made himself filthy so this boy could come to life. And this story annoys me. 
because he said he got up and began to speak and Luke doesn't tell us what he said. For the love, I want to know what did he say. Anyway, so Jesus takes this on and God said, this is the image. My son is going to come down and touch you in death and bring you life. Every one of us is going to die, but it doesn't have to kill us. Because we know that what Jesus did for us, if we will let him touch us with his power, it will heal us for eternity. You and I, every one of us is going to die. But all of us can still live. And I don't mean on a cloud with Bugs Bunny and a harp. I mean, we can begin living now because we're going to walk through a door of death into new life as Jesus did three days later. Remember, he came out of the tomb and he said, I'm here. You see, when you look at what's taking place here, the only way this woman got her son back is because the father lost his son. He gave him up. But here's a truth that seems a strange way to end this sermon. Both of those boys died again. That young man in Nain, they buried him another time. That child that Elijah laid on, and prayed for and carried down to his mom. I, I hope she went before him because I think one of the greatest tragedies in life is a parent have to bury their child. But one day, both the widow and the son were gone. Elijah was gone. And the widow of Nain, she died. Her son died again. Lazarus died again. Eutychus died again. Tabitha died again. Of the eight resurrections, specific names and stories of people who died in your scriptures. And who knows, I may have missed one or two, but of those eight stories that I'm aware of in the scriptures of people dying, all of them died again. But they didn't, did they? They did and they didn't. And that's how we live. Knowing that one day I am going to die and my family is going to stand around my casket and hopefully they say nice things if they show up and then I'm still going to be alive because my Jesus touched my casket. And he took on all my sin and all my filth and I let him. And the cross doesn't just simply show me my shame. It shows me his glory and his power. So I want you to understand the resurrection answers our greatest concerns and puts away our greatest doubts. How do we live a life knowing that all the things we've collected and all the relationships we've built and all the things we've accomplished are gonna die. And within years of my death, they're not gonna remember my name. They're not gonna know I was here. A few will, but within 40 or 50 years of my death, I'm just gonna be a social security number that once was used. No, church, don't believe it. Here's the truth. Nothing that I collect, no title I gather, and the relationships I have, the only things that are gonna last are those relationships that build us closer to Jesus Christ as we await his return, knowing we will die. Oh, but can we live? If you don't have that resurrection relationship with Jesus Christ, I ask you this morning, why not? Because we're all gonna walk through the door of death and Jesus has opened the door to life on the other side. Why would you not follow the one who can answer your every greatest concern? If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, in a room this size, it's awkward to ask you to come down front. It would be overwhelming. Several of us are going to be out in the foyer. If you want to know what life is with Jesus and you want to give your life to him and follow him, come see us in the foyer. We're going to be back in this corner. In the northeast corner, you're going to see the prayer station. Come meet us there. Nothing more important today than facing your inevitable future 
and betting your life on Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.